You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 27, verses 9 through 44. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenicia, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearful they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and occurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be, it will be as exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island." When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless those men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea." 
Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied to the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your ever-increasing grace in our life as you call us to glory. God, we know that uh, when we do not have words, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life, and so where else can we go except the word of God? And so God, we ask for your special grace for your people and your children here and now that you would unveil to us your very word and promises and that in us you would illuminate your grace and your mercy, your character and your steadfast love to us this evening. It's in your son's name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Aaron Bickett, and welcome to Christ Church. I am one of two ministry residents here at Christ Church, and it's an honor to be with you this evening. And if you're new around here, uh, I and the elders would love to get to know you guys. And so if you guys would come up after the service, we're going to be standing here at the front to get to know you better, chat, answer questions both about the congregation or about the text, and um, yeah, we'd love to just really connect with you guys uh, after the service. For everyone else, welcome back. Uh, tonight we dive into Acts chapter 27, the second, last, uh, the second to last chapter in the entire book of Acts. So you're almost there. You're almost there, guys. You're almost there. You're good. Uh, now, when I was given this text and the honor of preaching it this evening, uh, I was a bit nervous, kind of thinking, who preaches Acts 27? I mean, it's a bunch of nautical facts, a storm and a crash, uh, really just asking, how are we even to understand this entire chapter? And really, the exciting stuff's in chapter 28 with snakes and poison, all, some, all this fun stuff. And so, even still, after that, especially with a narrative text like this, there's a danger of falling into either the ditch of fantasy, allegorizing everything and putting it into our own meaning, or to the ravine of merely learning facts about the Word of God rather than meeting the living word himself. But as I read and read and read and became more and more convinced by the word of God in my own heart that this, really, this text really speaks to a kind of biblical, deep assurance of belonging to God in spite of rebellion and sorrow to overflowing worship. And so this evening, if you are struggling to rest in the steadfast faithfulness of God, through sin and through suffering, it has been and still is my prayer for you this evening that you will rest in him today. And perhaps, of course, this week this text might hit home for those of you who have really roughed it at sea on some of those Disney, Mickey, Norwegian, Carnival Cruise type things, yachts on the ocean, and really to you, I give my deepest condolences. But for the rest of us land lovers, I think 
we will see an incredible story unfold of man pitted against nature in Luke's account of Paul's final journey to Rome. And like any narrative of God's word, there are no useless facts or wasted words. We live not just by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so to begin, Paul so far has given testimony of his conversion and preached Christ again and again to higher and higher authorities uh, in tougher and tougher situations to both Roman and Jewish leadership, regularly surrounded by angry mobs. And he's been in prison now for two years with a final court case sending him all the way to Rome to stand before Caesar himself to be judged. And just before our text today, we finished with the sobering statement last week where Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been saved had he not appealed to Caesar. Which brings us to this week, describing the journey itself to Rome. In our text, we'll see that Luke here is writing one of the most detailed accounts of maritime practices in the ancient Near East. Uh, early meteorological surveys suggest that sailing in fall and winter during the time when Paul was sailing was exceedingly dangerous and oftentimes deadly on the Mediterranean. In both early Greek as well as Jewish thinking, the ocean was seen as a powerful, dangerous, even dark force, kind of a necessary evil, but certainly not a vacation destination. Our text tells us of Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, soldiers, mariners, and prisoners leaving Caesarea, sailing all the way to Myra from Cyprus under a Roman centurion named Julius. Then they pick up an Egyptian grain ship from Myra to Crete. And after that, the ship's leadership make a decision from Fairhaven at Crete to push west for a better harbor at Phoenicia. And finally, they are caught in a storm and thrown across the sea all the way to the island of Malta, crashing near its shores. In total, Luke tells us that the journey took 14 days, 14 days, two weeks of solid sailing from near the end of chapter 27. And on a map, their journey from Caesarea all the way to Malta roughly looks like about 1,500 sailing miles. So I mean, this is a huge journey and undertaking. And so, for this week's message, we will unpack this chapter in four headings. And so the first will be man's rebellion against God. The second will be man's resignation before God. Third will be God's response to man. And then fourthly will be man's response to God. And so it's this first point, man's rebellion against God, that will not only unveil the pride and rebellion of the centurions and sailors, but also the rebellion in our own hearts as fallen humanity. Romans 1.20 says that it is his eternal power and divine nature that have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And so too are the sailors in our story without excuse when things go awry on the open waters. Our first point really is simple, universal, and applied at all times that all people in and of themselves are in a constant state of rebellion. And in that state, we reject the wisdom of God and ultimately reject God himself. In our text specifically, up until this point, the centurion, pilot, and crew make choice after choice to ignore the natural warning signs of the season and are now rebelling against the direct word of the Lord from his apostle to cancel the voyage. Instead, they choose to slowly, painfully, and treacherously continue their attempt to make it to Rome. Like, hey, it's been great so far. We should probably just keep going, right? And this is in part, historically, I think, due to the fact that ancient grain ship like this 
Traveling late in the season was really promised a hefty bonus if they survived the trip. And the prisoners on top of that, Rome most certainly wanted more Colosseum bait for entertainment during the slower winter months. And so we definitely have motive here as to why they might really push for this. So we pick up Paul's warning in verse 10, which reads, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And so the majority decided to set off. Really great, really great. But it gets even better because in verse 13, Luke gives what I feel is almost a humorous detail where he says, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed. But of course, like any good plot twist with rising action, that was their last fatal decision because right at verse 14, we see what happens that soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land and they were driven along and off they go into nothingness. Now, I normally wouldn't need to go into the Greek here, but if you'll notice that word tempestuous, it's actually really not a common word we use in English. And in fact, it's not a common word in the Greek New Testament either. It's only ever used one time with the word being tufonikos. And if you aren't familiar with that, it's typhoon in English. And typhoon is simply a foreign geographic word for hurricane. And so instead, really, of a pina colada scented breeze, they're stuck in a hurricane. And it's details like this that were really Luke's way of building up the thematic landscape, almost a perfect storm, if you will. Though it would make a cool movie, I think that he writes these details, firstly to display the arrogance of the centurion and the others, but also to describe the default rebellious nature of humanity, even against nature itself. I found it fitting that the early church father Augustine once wrote himself, for what am I to myself without you, O Lord, but a guide to my own downfall? As human beings, we are naturally our own gods, even against all rationale. We believe the world is our oyster and we hold the shuckers. Time and time again, we see this belief throughout all of humanity. And even in our own American context especially, we almost applaud it, don't we? Movies like The Perfect Storm, Everest, or 127 Hours, Humanity's triumph over dangerous odds for our own glory and gain is really what today's secular humanism thrives on. And fascinating, isn't it? Even in our text, it truly is mankind alone who is the only creature to stare at the endless expanse of the sea, the waves, the wind, and the monsters that lie beneath and say, I am in control. And with these guys in a first century ship to boot. And so then really, it is not man's ignorance of God alone that is his downfall, but his fight for independence from him. Have you been living your life this way? Have you pushed against the wisdom of God this week for your own personal gain? This is who we are naturally, by default, apart from Christ. Sin and rebellion only lead to arrogance and awesome downfalls. Without the humility that comes from the reality from sitting under the authority of God, we as humans make fools of ourselves and catastrophes of our own physical and spiritual lives. And as Luke continues, this implicit reality then will be the baseline understanding for our story, the centurion, the sailors, and even us. And so to our next point, man's 
resignation before God, we see everyone now in a hurricane, being driven unwillfully, wherever it takes them, in despair. Verse 16 starts off by saying, we managed with difficulty to secure, to secure the ship's boats, this being the emergency boat attached. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, an area of dangerous shallow sandbars, they lowered the gear and were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Can you imagine being in this scenario? Suffering, dread, anxiety, riddling your bones from almost capsizing time and time again, nearly drowning to death each time? Luke tells us these details immediately after the arrogant decision to sail then writing that everything they brought with them is now being cast into the ocean for just a glimmer of hope that it might help save them. We see them still attempting to secure their own fate until all hope is dissolved, all alone in an endless stormy void. Luke paints this picture of despair so vividly that I found resignation to be a truly fitting word here for what he describes. Because to be resigned is really to accept that something undesirable cannot be avoided. Luke himself even states all hope of our being saved was finally abandoned. So even he isn't really doing great. And so this isn't to knock the good doctor here because really we are fragile creatures, aren't we? Too much sun, not enough water, or any number of other minor variances and our very life force is threatened. At a severe variance now, like a tempest or perhaps a tumor, and we can find ourselves quickly, without any anchor for hope, resigned to our fate. If there's one thing these, rever- these verses can remind us of, it's that we are utterly dependent on things going our own way. Paul himself knew human frailty all too well, where he writes in 2 Corinthians that uh, outwardly we are wasting away, or comments like, while we are in this tent, we groan inwardly. Even Jesus, after a long journey in John 4, where it was weary from travel, or when he sees the disciples in the garden and says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And man, if I'm honest with you guys, I don't even do well when I don't get the right burrito I ordered first thing in the morning, amen? Life is hard, we're just humans. How how much suffering can we really take and handle? I mean, our human frailty is just burritos away from falling apart, right? But what happens when we lose our jobs? What happens when the treatments to the terminal illness don't actually work? What happens when we lose friends, family members, loved ones, children, or even spouses. The desperation and fragility of mankind is the most existentially deafening cry in the cosmos, and yet is the most experientially avoided fact in the human condition. Why? Because we don't like thinking about these things. We don't enjoy dwelling on our frailty and impermanence. And so when we are gripped with the truth of our impermanence, where can we go? Have you ever experienced something in your own life that has left you feeling resigned to your fate? Are you there right now? Our Bibles say that even in spite of man's rebellion, 
the cries of humanity are not left alone to the vacuum of space or left enthroned to the depths of the ocean. As Christians, we know that the pleas of sinners and sufferers is met with a resounding response from the one who spoke all things into existence. Which excitingly brings us to our third point then, God's response to man. We read in verse 21 that there are now without food, and then Paul gets up and says, men, you should have listened to me, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Paul, through this perilous journey, is now exclaiming all is well from a word from the Lord of salvific hope from utter destruction. And the beautiful words that Paul gives us here deserve some thought, especially when he says, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship has said, do not be afraid. Where could you find more faith-anchoring statements than this? In the depth of a hurricane, surrounded by faithless sinners, on your way to an endless watery abyss, and Paul is moved to exclaim hope. Like every believer, though, I think Paul is touching here on the very heart of what it means to be anchored to God through Christ. Paul belongs to God, not just identifies with him, not just adheres to orthodoxy, he belongs to him. Not only that, but Paul's belonging then motivates him to worship and a worship a God who is worthy of his worship. Nonetheless, it is always this basis that Paul can and does preach the word of hope given to him, whether here or Agrippa or to the Jews or to the Gentiles. And you know, the other thing I found striking about this text was not just the Lord's words to Paul, but to whom else God addresses. If you'll remember in Acts 23, Nathan cleverly stated that uh, God had basically made Paul unkillable by calling him to Rome and promising his arrival, right? This implies then that God did not have to give Paul a second revelation for safety, especially since we've never seen Paul's faith waver up until this point, even in light of near or certain death. So what's incredible then is that the proclamation from the angel that, Paul, that all would be well wasn't just for Paul. You see that. Verse 24, he says, Do not be afraid, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted all those who sail with you. Who else is this for then? Luke tells us that there were 275 other passengers on board besides Paul and his companions, most of which were derelict sinners. What a grace and a mercy. Rebel sinners receiving a rescue call. This is the response of Paul's God. Because God could really have chosen a hundred other more elaborate and spectacular ways to get Paul and his companions off the boat to Rome. But instead, by his abundant grace, he chooses to save a bunch of arrogant sea rats like these from certain death along the way. The God of earth and sea and all that lies between, when he comes, close to our sinful rebellion, our resignation, does not ruin us. He rescues us. A beautiful truth to be had for sure, 
But is this the kind of response from God you expect in your own life? Do you have a deep assurance of God's rescue of you from your own sin or his anchoring of your life in life sufferings? Is your belonging to him what you hold on to when the storms of life do come? Or in those storms, is he actually the object of your worship? I mean, when life gets rough, the first thing that we run to is usually a good indicator of what we're really worshiping deep down. Another thought too is, uh, like Paul, does your belonging and worship to God take the form of evangelism? If you can say all of those things are true of you, have you in worship proclaimed hope to those in sin and suffering around you on board with you? Unfortunately, we live still in a world today that is marked by the ever famous passage or famous quote from John Piper, which reads, missions exist because worship doesn't. If you cannot say that these things are true of you right now, I would encourage you not to start that journey by trying to muster up your own strength or gritting your teeth and trying to preach to others like Paul did. I would instead start by letting go of the little strength that you have left and preach instead to yourself first. Like Paul, it is your belonging to God and your worship of him that is the fuel for your hope and what genuinely drives the proclamation of it. To put it another way, it is Christ's resurrection of you that makes it possible then to exclaim his resurrection hope to others. Even David in Psalm 51 asked of the Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation, uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Ask the Lord for this kind of assurance today. Paul's deep belonging did not come simply because he woke up one morning. The storms of life will come. Are you prepared? And remember, like has been mentioned before, Paul's faith did not just muster up overnight. Up until this point, Paul's Paul's deep belonging to God was built on desperate prayer and a deep study of the word. During months of travel, three years in Arabia, a year in Antioch, 18 months in Corinth, three years in Ephesus, two years in the Caesarean prison through riots, beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, hunger, rivers, nakedness, seas, false prophets, bandits, Jews, Gentiles, and sleepless nights. And I think that I'm just gonna wake up tomorrow morning and have this hurricane crushing faith, right? It is not so. When talking about the diligence in reading the word of God, a preacher I listened to once asked, When is the best time to plant an apple tree? Anybody? Any guesses? 30 years ago, (laughs) right? 30 years ago is the best time to plant an apple tree. But what's the second best time? Today. Today is the second best time. And so today, let us exhort ourselves and one another away from unbelieving hearts towards a good and faithful Savior who is the one to whom we belong and the object of which we worship. And so, now when we are genuinely anchored and abiding and belonging and do worshipfully proclaim his gospel, man will and must respond, even if we don't see it. However, like Nathan mentioned too, we will see that those responses are always divided. Which brings us to the fourth point then, man's response to God. 
Verse 29 reads that, fearing that we might run on the rocks, they, the sailors, let down the anchors, four of them, from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boats into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ships and let the boat go. Wherever the word of the Lord goes out, two responses always take place. In this passage, the character we see portraying a faithful response, I believe, is the centurion, actually. Because remember, it was his call to go forward to Phoenicia, knowing how awful the voyage had been thus far. He rejected Paul's warnings, and really he's the one who got them into this mess in the whole, in this, this mess in the whole place. But when we see the centurion listen to Paul's charge to keep the men on the ship, he, he listens. And then he even spares Paul from his own soldier's plans to kill him. All of this, I believe, is in response to the grace of God. The inverse response, though, however, is faithlessness. And I think the sailors, most certainly, are some of those who show that. Who still tried to take their salvation into their own hands, even being willing to abandon everyone else on board while they attempted their escape. And like them, too, the soldiers, even, tried to save their own lives by trying to kill all of the prisoners on board so they couldn't escape. But this is how humanity is by nature. Responding for self, our own preservation and prosperity is our highest priority apart from Christ. But still, I mean, these are still just responses for those who are called to the faith. But what about those in the faith? What are two ways they, really we, Respond to the Lord. Where might we find some examples of God's people responding, especially in the context of, say, a storming sea to proclaim repentance to another nation? Um, If that sounds familiar, it's because Paul's life here of response is being pitted against, by Luke, against the prophet Jonah. Because unlike the prophet Jonah, fleeing the will of the Lord, Paul, the prophet of God, went willingly to a hated foreign neighbor of Israel to preach repentance and good news. And unlike the story of Jonah, where the wind and the waves are really the fault of the uh, disobedient prophet, it's simply because the the sailors made a foolish decision. And while Jonah remained under the deck silent in indifference, Paul spoke peace for the sailors above board. And unlike Jonah's passive and reluctant attitude to his own belonging to God, Paul preached boldly of his belonging and worship of God. And of course, unlike the story of Jonah, Paul's story didn't really need a sacrificial toss overboard, a three-day burial and resurrection for saving, because it had already taken place in Christ. Because you see, Jesus' redemptive work at Calvary became history's, and really humanity's, fork in the road. Everyone now must respond to his lordship and his saving work, not just for our being made right with God, but for our own daily growing experience in him, that we might respond in worship and faithfulness, not selfish faithlessness. It is each day that we can choose to respond to Christ, to abide in his resurrection life and ministry for his glory and for for the sake of those around us. And it really is precisely Christ's work for Paul, in Paul, and through Paul that is on display to the recipients of Paul's ministry, even here in chapter 27. And isn't it so much like Jesus' very own ministry? 
Both Jesus and Paul, on their journey towards their final earthly destinations, did not simply pass by lesser side characters in cold resolve, but responded and proclaimed hope to both the powerful and to the poor, to the pilot as well as the prisoner. Paul, having been given all those who sailed with him, received a glorious shadow of the ministry victory that Jesus had won, written in John 6.39 where he says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And even John 18.9 says, I have not lost one of those you have given me. And so too, we now as Christians share in Christ's ministry victory. In the office, in the shop, or at the sand pit, as we share our lives and our bread with those around us, proclaiming the hope that Jesus has won for us and for them, we walk in his resurrection life. And if you'll notice in verse 35 as well, Paul shares this final ministry parallel where he even breaks bread and gives thanks to God with some of the ones who would later attempt to betray him. But unlike Paul, Jesus had no faithful centurion to save him. Here at Christ Church, after each sermon, we weekly remember this fact at the Lord's table, uh, that Jesus really willingly gave himself up for betrayal, surrendering his rights to be saved so that we instead might receive salvation. In the end, we see that Paul and all those who sailed with him are saved from a watery grave. But if Acts chapter 27 really shows us anything, it is that in spite of our rebellion and resignation, God has responded to us by rescuing us, not ruining us. And because of this, our belonging to God and our worship of him is the basis for our hope and the sharing of it. Therefore, men and women are called to respond. To the one who responds in faith is a promise of hope that far exceeds earthly salvation shipped from shipwrecks or bankruptcy or even cancer. And because God's response to us has been by his eternal son then, then even if these finite bodies for ships crash on some reef like cancer, he has promised us and Jesus is waiting to take us to his eternal shores. We Christians are not promised comfort, we are not promised pensions or even old age in the end, but what we are promised is that we will be with him in the end. Christian, he is faithful to hold you fast until then. And even just like Paul, our ultimate end is not to just simply make it to Rome, it's to make it all the way home. Have you responded to this hope? If you are a Christian, then by God, then God has responded to your rebellion and resignation by his son. Consider this your weekly then pulpit service announcement to respond to God in worship today, this week, and even this year because of your belonging. If you have not responded to this call, however, today is the day. God has come near to you, and by his sacrifice of his son on the cross for your sinful rebellion, he has overcome every wind and gale of your life. Repent and believe on Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He has overcome your sin, he has overcome your suffering to purchase you, that you might belong to him and worship him for all of eternity, just as Paul once did and is now doing on those eternal shores. Join him, join us this evening as we sail together towards home. Let us pray.
Father, we are ultimately thankful for you. We are thankful that you have given us everything that we need in life, for life and godliness in your Son, through your Word. God, would you open our eyes and our hearts more and more to see your goodness, to see your truth, to see you for who you truly are. Please help us to rest this week in our deep belonging of you, and may we respond in genuine worship of you, both to our friends, our family, to you most importantly, and even to those who do not know you yet. May you do these works in us, Holy Spirit, because only you can. It is in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.